Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 25th of November. Today, Britain's complicity in the torture of its own citizens in Pakistan has been condemned by one of the world's leading human rights organisations. There has to be some kind of criminal investigation now. And really the question is not whether there should be an investigation, but when. Also today, no global warming conspiracy, say the scientists whose hacked emails have been seized upon by climate change deniers. I would challenge anyone who had that kind of a collection of their own email correspondence not to be liable to all sorts of accusations if, if they were made public. The widow of the bomb disposal expert Olaf Schmidt, killed in Afghanistan, leads the tributes at Truro Cathedral. Ozzy's death can never mean business as usual again for our son or me. There's just too much that time cannot erase. EasyJet has withdrawn its in-flight magazine, which included a fashion shoot at Berlin's Holocaust Memorial. He picked it up and he said, as soon as I saw the images and recognised where they'd been shot, I just realised what a contradiction in terms it was. And a Delaroche masterpiece, feared lost in the Second World War, is to go on show at the National Gallery. First, here's Bill Overton with the headlines. British intelligence officers did know that British terror suspects were being tortured in Pakistan, claims Human Rights Watch. A report by the campaign titled Cruel Britannia is based on a year-long investigation. It says Pakistani intelligence admit to torture of a medical student from London and a man from Luton, and that British officials were breathing down their necks for information. More flooding is expected in Cumbria after several more inches of rain fell in the county. There are fears the Carver Bridge in Workington is about to collapse, which will cause yet more disruption as the bridge carries many communication cables for telephones. A railway bridge in the town is safe, so Network Rail are going to open a temporary station. That'll allow residents to cross from one side of the town to the other once again. The Chief Inspector of Constabulary says police should change their tactics for dealing with protests following the G20 conference in April. He wants a new manual for officers and warns against tactics that appear unfair, aggressive or inconsistent because they risk losing public support. Many of Britain's top companies aren't doing anything about climate change, reports the University of Edinburgh Business School. It says only one in five are trying to cut emissions. Some top brands are actually increasing their output, such as Barclays Sky and eBay. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are in Bermuda to celebrate the 400th anniversary of British settlement there. It happened by accident when a group of colonists were shipwrecked in 1609. The royal couple will tour the capital in an open-top carriage. As part of the show, the Duke of Edinburgh will be presented with a pair of Bermuda shorts. The picture on three front pages this morning is of Christina Schmidt, who buried her husband Olaf, the bomb disposal expert, yesterday. She's carrying a bouquet of white flowers and wearing his medals on her dark blue coat. We must fight for peace, the Times says, she told other mourners. We'll hear a full report on the service later in Guardian Daily. That paper also reports criticism of the Americans by the Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth. He complained the President had delayed sending more troops to Afghanistan, which made it harder to persuade the British public to continue supporting the campaign there. There's a whole range of financial stories on the front pages. The Financial Times says British Bankers Association is worried that two Saudi companies have defaulted on billions of pounds of loans. It also says the BBC is negotiating to sell part of BBC Worldwide, its commercial arm, for as much as £2 billion. The Telegraph quotes the Governor of the Bank of England, arguing Gordon Brown's economic strategy is too risky and that we must get rid of some of our debt. The Mirror headline, That's Rich, 
It claims 18 members of the Shadow Cabinet would save £7 million if they get back into government and cut inheritance tax. And our paper reports on a German bank manager with a difference whose motto was rob the rich, give to the poor. She has confessed having transferred money from rich customers to help poor clients. She became known as the Robin Hood banker. All the sports pages lead with the same story, as our headline puts it, Liverpool crash out with a whimper. For though they won last night in the Champions League, it wasn't enough to stop the team being eliminated from the competition. We'll have more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. Human Rights Watch has condemned Britain's role in the torture of its own citizens. A damning report says the treatment of captives in Pakistan was cruel, counterproductive and in clear breach of international law. Afwa Hirsch is our legal affairs correspondent. This report um, is a pretty strong condemnation of the actions of British agents, including in torture. It's important to draw the distinction. No one is accusing um, British intelligence agents of actually torturing people. But the issue here is complicity. And by complicity, it means that British agents knew that someone was being tortured and benefited from the information that was obtained as a result. Or as the report actually alleges, put pressure on the authorities in Pakistan to torture people so that they could benefit from the intelligence that was obtained. And those are obviously very serious allegations, but they are very robustly made in this report. And they very much chime with some of the investigations that The Guardian has published over the last year. Well, from the beginning, this report makes it clear that it's very much... um, been put in momentum by the reporting, especially of Ian Cobain, um, The Guardian's reporter, who's really led on this issue from the beginning, um, covering information that's been used in trials here, but which traces back to the activities of the Pakistani intelligence agencies um, and the very close relationship that's existed between British agents and Pakistani officials. Pakistan, of course, notorious for its use of torture, um, in particular against terrorist suspects. The um, human rights group says that the British government now finds itself in a legally, morally and politically invidious position through its complicity in torture. What are the implications for the British government? Well, what that statement refers to um, is the fact that there is an obligation, both under international law and under domestic criminal law, for the British government to act if they find prima facie evidence of British agents being involved in torture. Um, Torture is a crime with universal jurisdiction, which means that no matter where it's committed, it can be tried in our courts here. And it's also been incorporated into our criminal law. Um, So there is a very strong obligation on the British state to investigate if allegations of torture are made. And they say that UK complicity is clear um, for a variety of reasons. I think... The implications of that are that uh, there has to be some kind of criminal investigation now. And really, the question is not whether there should be an investigation, but when. Um, This report argues strongly for an inquiry to take place. It's difficult to see how, if there were to be an independent inquiry, there could be a serious criminal investigation until that had taken place. Because the two things can't run together, there might be, there would be significant overlap. Um, So it's really a question of whether there should be a criminal investigation now or whether it should take place after an independent inquiry. And what have the British government said about this report? Um, I'm not sure they've they've made an official response yet, um, but they have said repeatedly in the run-up to this report being published that they condemn torture, they don't condone its use. Um, they've said that they'll publish their policy for intelligence agents, which sets out questioning techniques and 
prohibits the use of torture. Um, they haven't published that yet. And they've also refused to publish the policy that was in place at the time these events are alleged to have happened. Um, and by saying that they don't condone torture, they're really sidestepping the issue because nobody's saying that the British government promotes the use of torture. What's being said um, is that when torture has been taking place, nothing has been done to stop it. And even worse, we've actually benefited from its use and still not done anything to prevent it happening. Afwa Hirsch, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash world. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. The emails among scientists at the University of East Anglia that were made public by a computer hacker are not evidence of a conspiracy to hide the truth about global warming. That's according to Professor Phil Jones, director of the university's Climatic Research Unit. With less than two weeks before the UN summit in Copenhagen, climate change deniers say the emails show the scientists colluded to manipulate data. Our environment correspondent is David Adam. He gave an interview yesterday to the Press Association, the first time really he's, he's sort of broken cover, um, in which he he largely defended the science and the integrity of, of the data. Um, he regretted the loose language and the tone of some of the emails. Um, he, he's pretty shaken up by the whole thing. He's described it as the worst few days of his professional life. He's had threats to his personal safety. He's had to pass those on to the police. Um, but he isn't going to resign. What do these emails tell us? They're one of those things that tells you pretty much whatever you want to see in them. I mean, there's so much of them. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of emails. And I would challenge anyone who had that kind of a collection of their own email correspondence not to be liable to all sorts of accusations if, if they were made public, because they're not intended for a public domain. So they're written in a way which, which is personal and private and, and flippant. And, you know, we all do it, don't we? Well, I do. Um, <laughs> Um, I think what it what it shows is it shows us a little bit about how scientists work in in a very raw form. So we we don't see science in the polished form that we usually see. We don't see it in their rigorous, careful language. We see it scientists as people, as bitter people, as jealous people, as as rivalries, as as, as annoyed and irritated and 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 competing for attention and all of the things that that anyone who as human has, beings really precisely. I think. There is this sort of impression of scientists as being cold and functional and, and detached um, because that is the way that science is. But that is not the way scientists are, of, of, of course. I mean, why would we expect them to be like that? They are a community like any other. And there are, you know, lively scientists and quiet scientists. There are uh, science, some scientists who perhaps stretch the the limits of what they can say in the same way as some journalists perhaps do that. How much damage has all this done to the public understanding of climate change? About that. I'm, I'm at the sort of end of the spectrum that, that says, look, this, this is kind of stuff happens regularly, you know, and actually the, the sceptic and denial industry is, is a lot less influential than it used to be. And then there are others who say, but the rise of the internet and it's all more accessible now and it, stuff flies around the world and has influence. And, and you know, we're at a very sensitive time because we're trying to get agreements in the US on climate change and also around the world on climate change. I, th- and I think the influence on the public is probably greater than the influence on what I would call the people who actually make the decisions and have the power. So the politicians, the big corporate guys, they all seem pretty solidly behind um, climate science, if you want to call it that way. Public, you know, I, I can see why there is confusion. And I think part of the reason is that climate change happens slowly. And we in the media 
are partly responsible for building up an impression that it's an imminent threat, an urgent threat. And for some parts of the world, perhaps it is uh, more urgent or more imminent. But for most of us in Northern Europe, it isn't an urgent and imminent threat to our livelihoods and to our way of being. And I think there is a... We've created a bogeyman and we want to see him now. And so we do rush all the time to vindicate all of these stories that we've written about climate change. David Adam. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, the National Gallery prepares to show a lost masterpiece by Delaroche depicting Charles I. In the middle of the Blitz in 1941, uh, this uh, large canvas was talking about uh, a huge painting which exceeds in size even Lady Jane Grey uh, itself. Uh, the, the picture was uh, damaged in the bombing of uh, Bridgewater House. But first, EasyJet has apologised for a fashion shoot that appeared in its in-flight magazine. It featured models posing in front of Berlin's Jewish Museum and Holocaust Memorial. The budget airline has been forced to withdraw almost 300,000 copies of the magazine, EasyJet Traveller. Kate Connolly is in Berlin. It's over eight pages. I picked the magazine up last week on my way back uh, to Berlin and um, basically it it does sort of hit you in the stomach because you see these very familiar images for anybody who lives in Berlin um, uh, and then of the Holocaust Memorial which is massive a massive site in the centre of Berlin um, a commemoration to um, Europe's Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust and also the Jewish Museum. They're both architecturally um, high points of um, in Berlin and um, against so against the backdrop of these um, of these sites, we had um, models posing, leaning against the pillars, posing in some very striking um, uh, clothes by Berlin designers. The title of the article was "A Quick Guide to the Chic Side of Berlin," and uh, and this is what has basically sparked the uh, the anger of quite a few people who wrote to EasyJet complaining um, about it. What have they been saying? Well, I mean, they they just say that it's completely inappropriate what they've done and uh, wondering whether they've actually thought the thing through. I spoke to an artist from London um, who was flying from Venice to Gatwick on at the beginning of November and uh, he said that um, he was just shocked. Uh, he picked it up and he said, as soon as I saw the images and recognised where they'd been shot, I just realised what a contradiction in terms it was, um, that these are places where you're supposed to feel um, the sense, meditate on the human life lost and then suddenly you've got a fashion shoot there. Um, he just said he felt it was completely inappropriate. Speaking to the publishing house, it's, a, it's actually a publishing house that produces the magazine um, that EasyJet has contracted out to them. They said the fashion shoot was intended to promote local design talent, but also to raise awareness from an educational perspective. They said that it was of utmost important that visitors went to Berlin to see the Jewish Museum and the Holocaust Memorial. Um, of course, some people might throw doubt on whether they've come up with that idea since the complaints have come in. Um, and EasyJet, for its part, has said that um, they didn't actually see the magazine until it had been printed. also raises certain questions. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. At a service in Truro Cathedral yesterday, colleagues paid tribute to bomb disposal expert Olaf Schmidt, the staff sergeant killed in Afghanistan. Stephen Morris was there. In my eyes, my husband, my son's father, was a warrior. 
Warriors are unique, our protectors, not destroyers. I hope the work Olaf and others like him undertake on our behalf is not taken for granted or goes unnoticed by our leaders. Most of you will have known Oz the Joker, always up for a giggle. However, I live with a very different man. Particularly in the last 18 months, I've stood by him through, as he described, his toughest, darkest challenges ever. When he felt compromised, overwhelmed, threatened, I've wiped his tears, carried him, and fought his fears for him. Becoming his widow has been the hardest thing I have ever done for him. We now have a duty, not just to honour what he stood for, but to live lives which honour the sacrifice he made. Please do not allow him to die in vain. Very Reverend Dr. Christopher Hardwick, Dean of Truro. And you led the service today. I led the service today. Very moving service indeed. A fitting tribute to a very brave and courageous soldier and a very fitting and proper service for his family and for the community. And we are very conscious of holding that balance between what is a national occasion where we're remembering our, our troops abroad and, and all that they do for the country, but also honouring the family's wishes for, for their, their grief at this time and I hope we, we struck that balance. I'm Canon Perengay, uh, the Canon Presenter and Head of Worship at Truro Cathedral. You knew a little of Olaf Schmidt personally? Yes, yes. Olaf sang in the Cathedral Choir in the time before I came here on the staff, but uh, I was connected with the Cathedral for several years before that time, and I can remember him uh, as head chorister, I can remember him, uh, his, his particular sort of character and smile. just come to show my respect really you know for a very brave soldier um, well like everybody else here they've all come to do the same thing you know and I was in the services and it brings back memories of me because I was in a shooting part uh, a rifle shooting party uh, where we had a gun carriage for a funeral and it was bringing those memories uh, back for me you know and uh, I didn't want to miss it the, the, the lives you saved uh, immense must be immense 65 the bombs that he actually deactivated in his career. The pity wasn't one more because he would have been home. The following day he was going to be home. A 19th century masterpiece is to be displayed in public after being hidden away in an attic for almost 70 years. Charles I, insulted by Cromwell's soldiers by the French artist Paul Delaroche, was spirited up to Scotland during the Blitz. It'll be the centrepiece of an exhibition at the National Gallery. The assistant curator of post-1800 painting is Anne Robbins. It is actually a very uh, uh, exciting uh, story. Uh, the picture was commissioned uh, uh, from uh, Delaroche in, uh, in 1836 when the artist, the French artist, was at the height of his fame uh, by the Earl of Ellesmere, Lord Francis Egerton, 
and was shown at the Salon in 1837 and then uh, went uh, from there straight to, uh, to, to London in Bridgewater House in Mayfair during the Second World War. And when the house was bombed uh, in the middle of the Blitz in 1941, uh, this uh, large canvas, we're talking about a, a huge painting which exceeds in size even Lady Jane Grey uh, itself, uh, the, the picture was uh, damaged in the bombing of uh, Bridgewater House and, uh, and then uh, presumably we don't know exactly what happened um, in, 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 in the middle of this uh, chaos uh, but it was presumably rolled and then transferred to a house uh, in the borders where uh, in the summer uh, it was, uh, as it were, rediscovered by uh, our team of conservators and uh, the curators of this uh, of this show, which is about to open in February. You mentioned Lady Jane Grey. This is the execution of Lady Jane Grey, yes. one of Della Roche's other masterpieces, which is in the National Gallery's permanent collection. Yes, uh, but may, it may be a, a surprising uh, fact to your audience, but uh, it's actually one of the National Gallery's most famous pictures. It, 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 uh, it's one of our highest postcard sales, for instance, which is usually a telling way of, of, of knowing uh, which painting uh, is, is actually appealing <laughs> to, to the public. And it's also, interestingly enough, this is in front of this picture that the floor needs revarnishing most often. <laughs> so this is a painting in front of which uh, visitors uh, uh, definitely stop. Uh, yes, it's it also, interestingly, the, uh, the, the story of Lady Jane Grey uh, is, uh, is comparable to that of Charles I, of, I mean, of the painting of Lady Jane Grey, in that it it's, uh, suffered loss and then rediscovery. Entered the national, the, the, the national collection, the British National Collection, in 1902, then was transferred to the Tate, uh, the Tate Gallery, which was uh, the current Tate Britain at Millbank, and then suffered damage in a 1928 uh, flood, when uh, the, the, all the storage spaces of the Tate Gallery were uh, were flooded, and the painting of Lady Jane Grey was given as, as lost. And, and it's only in 1973 that it was unrolled and discovered uh, virtually uh, undamaged, and that was put again on display. So you've got the same, in, in a very strange way, the same story of, of, uh, of loss and rediscovery, as I said, which is also paralleled by, by De La Roche's reputation itself, as you could argue that it's an artist which in his time was a was immensely successful and then uh, was forgotten and then rediscovered in recent years. Anne Robbins from the National Gallery. Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.